This is our first official podcast of the new decade. It is January the 1st, 2020. Please accept my sincere well wishes for you, your friends, and your family on the start of this new year. This year, I encourage you to set your vision and your goals even higher and take action steps to get there. Now, let's get on with our first official podcast of the decade, a podcast for infertility. The inability to achieve pregnancy can be very stressful for a couple that's trying to conceive. Infertility is defined as the failure to achieve pregnancy after 12 months of unprotected intercourse in a woman who is under the age of 35. And for women over the age of 35, it's after six months of attempted conception. Infertility can affect up to 15% of all couples. So in this podcast, we will review the ASRM guidelines for the infertility evaluation. All right, before we get started with specifics, we have to remember that infertility involves the couple, not just the female patient. In fact, according to the ASRM, male factor infertility can account for up to 40 to 50% of infertility per couples. And it's also important to realize and to educate patients that there are times when despite the recommended workup, unexplained infertility can be the final diagnosis. In other words, we can't find a true cause for the infertility based on the test offered. Unexplained infertility can be diagnosed in as many as 30% of infertile couples. In general, for the female portion of the evaluation, there's three areas to focus on. Uterine factors, tubal factors, and ovulatory function. Now, if you notice, we didn't talk about cervical factors. In the past, and this is actually how I trained, we actually performed a postcoital test. But according to the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, the postcoital test is actually limited in value and should not be routinely ordered. However, again, uterine factors, a test for tubal factor infertility, and ovulatory function are required, and we'll get into that in just a minute. It's obviously a lot easier for the male because really there's just one test to order there and that's the semen analysis and we'll get into those parameters in just a minute. As always, every evaluation should begin with a detailed and a comprehensive medical history, including things that could be suggestive as the cause of infertility, like menstrual history, including its regularity and predictability. Coital frequency and timing is also important, as is past gynecological history, like any STDs, history of endometriosis, and of course, pelvic inflammatory disease that can lead to tubal factor infertility. Also, remember to look for any past surgeries focusing on abdominal and pelvic procedures. If the history suggests anovulation due to missed or delayed cycles, then the algorithm for evaluation can follow that path. Anovulation may be related to obesity, hypothalamic and pituitary dysfunction, PCOS, or other etiologies. Remember that PCOS is the most common cause of ovulatory infertility. Now, there's no universally accepted definition of PCOS. However, it may be diagnosed based on the National Institute of Health, Rotterdam, or the androgen excess criteria. For more details on PCOS, you can go to our archives and look for the podcast specifically on that subject. All women with PCOS should be screened for the metabolic syndrome with measurements of waist circumference, blood pressure, fasting lipid panel, and glucose tolerance testing. 
Remember that for all patients with ovulatory dysfunction, thyroid disease and hyperprolactinemia should be evaluated as both can cause ovulatory dysfunction. Remember, according to the ASRM as a clinical pearl, both a TSH and a prolactin level should be checked in women with irregular cycles who are having infertility. Okay, as we're talking about ovulatory dysfunction, remember that clinical history can be used to assess ovulatory cycles because most ovulatory women will have regular and predictable cycles between every 25 to 35 days accompanied by some PMS symptoms. However, and this is an important clinical pearl, up to one third, that's 33% of women who have normal menstrual cycles are actually anovulatory. So confirmation of ovulation should still be considered even if they have regular cycles. Ovulatory dysfunction is defined as a history of irregular cycles or a luteal progesterone level that is repeatedly less than three nanograms per ml. By contrast, a progesterone value greater than 3 nanograms per ml in the luteal phase is presumptive evidence of ovulation. So remember, to get a luteal phase progesterone for confirmation of ovulation, even if the patient reports by history regular menstrual cycles. All right, we're still on this topic of ovulatory dysfunction. When we come back, let's talk about testing for diminished ovarian reserve. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ovarian reserve tests are good predictors of response to ovarian stimulation, but poor results do not necessarily predict inability to achieve a live birth. If a woman has unexplained ovarian insufficiency or premature ovarian failure represented by an elevated FSH before the age of 40 years of age, then fragile X carrier screening is recommended. This is done in order to determine whether she has FMR1 premutation. Now, there's some controversy as to who should get ovarian reserve testing, with some experts recommending checking this only in women over the age of 35, and some recommend universal testing for all infertile women. Testing for all infertile women does have the advantage of finding this elevated FSH level early on, which could potentially be a marker for fragile X carrier screening. Serum tests that can give light to ovarian reserve function include serum testing for FSH, antimalurian hormone, and serum estradiol levels. Ovarian reserve can be assessed by measuring estradiol and FSH together between cycle days 2 and 5. Follicle-stimulating hormone levels greater than 10 IUs per liter are associated with a less robust response to ovarian stimulation. 
estradiol serves as an aid for interpreting FSH results. Basal estradiol levels typically should be less than 60 to 80 picograms per ml, and elevated estradiol levels may have a suppressive effect on FSH levels and are indicative of decreased ovarian reserve. Additionally, serum antimalarian hormone is produced by the granulosa cells of antral follicles and therefore is another serum marker of ovarian reserve. An antimalarian hormone value less than 1 nanogram per ml is considered to be representative of low ovarian reserve. In general, providers tend to favor serum assessments for ovarian reserve because they're considered to be more objective, but there is an ultrasound component to assessing ovarian reserve, but some argue that this is more subjective, and this is the ultrasonographic assessment of the antral follicle count. Ultrasound assessment of the antral follicle count is determined by the number of follicles that measure between 2 to 10 millimeters in both ovaries. Low antral follicle count may be defined as less than 5 to 7 follicles and is also associated with poor response to ovarian stimulation. However, antral follicle count is a relatively poor predictor of future ability to become pregnant. Antral follicle counts may also be elevated in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and that's why experts tend to favor the serum testing for ovarian reserve. That wraps up our focus on ovulatory function. Next, let's get into tubal factor evaluation. Hysterosalpinography, or HSG, is the procedure of choice to assess tubal patency. HSG is done using radiopaque contrast injected through the cervix during fluoroscopy. However, the positive predictive value of an HSG is only estimated at about 38%, while the negative predictive value is much higher at 94%. So given the low positive predictive value, an HSG that demonstrates non-patency requires further evaluation to confirm tubal occlusion, and this may include laparoscopy with tubal chromotubation. An alternative method that does not require fluoro is modified sonohysterography. Sonohysterography is typically utilized for a visualization of the uterine cavity, but an extension of sonohysterography called hysterosalpingo contrast sonography helps determine tubal patency as well. This technique often uses a contracts agent with air bubbles to aid in identification of the tubes that are not usually seen with ultrasound. However, there are no U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved contrast agents for this modified sonohysterographic approach. Also, the accuracy of hysterosapingo contrast sonography may be more dependent on operator experience than the HSG. So, as of now, according to the ASRM, the role of contrast sonohysterography in determining tubal patency is still evolving and requires more data. Okay, speaking of HSG, remember that HSG is limited in its ability to identify uterine cavity masses or adhesions because these structures are not radioopaque. So HSG relies on visualization of the mass effect of uterine lesions to identify any abnormality. But the sensitivity of HSG for uterine cavity polypoid lesions is only about 50%. So remember that HSG 
HSG is much better for tubal evaluation than it is for cavity evaluation. Malurian anomalies, however, can be detected with HSG, although other imaging modalities are needed to differentiate and confirm the final diagnosis. This includes either magnetic resonance imaging or three-dimensional ultrasound, which can help clarify a suspected uterine Malurian anomaly. All right, let's review here. We've covered ovarian evaluation and tubal evaluation, and this brings us now to uterine factor eval. Uterine factors associated with infertility include endometrial polyps, synechiae, malurian anomalies, and of course, leiomyomas. But leiomyomas are only known to affect fertility when they are submucosal or cavity distorting. Using sonohistorography, the uterine cavity is easily defined and abnormalities like endometrial polyps or submucosal fibroids can be identified. Now, here's a clinical pearl. More than 16% of infertile women and 40% of women with abnormal uterine bleeding will actually have an abnormality on sonohistorography. So remember, it's important to evaluate the uterine cavity as well. In female patients with a complaint of infertility, transvaginal ultrasound aids in detection of uterine leiomyomas that may affect the uterine cavity. The addition of sonohistorography also helps to assess the uterine cavity for these patients. However, for true identification of intracavitary lesions, direct visualization of the uterine cavity by hysteroscopy is preferred because this is the most definitive method for diagnosis of endometrial polyps, uterine synechiae and possibly submucosal fibroids. Nonetheless, hysteroscopy is not as commonly used for the initial evaluation of women with infertility because of cost and access considerations. However, if a cavity-distorting mass or intracavitary lesion is suspected, then hysteroscopy is recommended. This now brings us to the evaluation for male factor infertility. Remember that male factor is a cause of infertility in 40 up to 50% of couples. And as always, it's important to always begin with a comprehensive history. This history for the male includes coital frequency and timing, duration of infertility, any evidence of sexual dysfunction, including ejaculation or erectile issues. As with the female partner, it's also important to review sexual history and any prior sexually transmitted infections. Lastly, remember to search for any medications that may affect sperm function, including anabolic steroids or supplements like testosterone over-the-counter supplementations. For semen collection, for the semen analysis, a two to five day interval of abstinence is optimal before semen collection. Ideally, the sample is obtained by masturbation in the laboratory collection room. Semen collection at home is possible if the sample is transported at room or body temperature for evaluation by the lab and if it's done within one hour of collection. The ASRM and the World Health Organization follow the same accepted references for a semen analysis. In general, semen volume is normal at or above 1.5 mLs with a pH greater than 7.2. A sperm concentration of greater than 15, and again, that's 10 to the 6 per mL, is considered normal. Total sperm number per ejaculate is considered greater than or equal to 39. Total motility as a percentage should be 40% or more, with progressive motility noted of at least 32%. Also, sperm agglutination should be absent. 
As an easier way to remember the normal values for a semen analysis, remember the rule of twos. Semen volume should be 2 mLs, and sperm concentration per ejaculate should be 20, with a total sperm concentration of 40. So 2 times 20 equals 40. Lastly, as a normal parameter for semen analysis is the sperm morphology percentile. According to the World Health Organization, the lower reference limit for normal forms is 4%. Specifically, regarding sperm morphology, the Tigerberg criteria exists, and there's an excellent prognosis regarding male fertility if there's greater than 14% morphologically normal spermatozoa. When there is between 4 and 14% morphologically normal spermatozoa, that is a good prognosis. But there is a poor prognosis when there is less than 4% morphologically normal spermatozoa. As we come to the end of the podcast, you may be wondering one question. How does laparoscopy fit in into the evaluation for infertility? Well, laparoscopy should not be considered part of the first-line evaluation for the infertile patient. However, laparoscopy can be used as a secondary evaluation in two specific scenarios. The first is when the screening HSG shows a possibility of tubal abnormality or occlusion. In this case, diagnostic or operative laparoscopy can be performed with chromotubation to ensure proper tubal anatomy and patency. The second scenario when laparoscopy may be considered is when patients specifically with unexplained infertility have been unable to achieve pregnancy with three to six cycles of controlled ovarian hyperstimulation with intrauterine insemination. Remember that for unexplained infertility, controlled ovarian hyperstimulation with intrauterine insemination is the treatment of choice. And when these patients fail to achieve pregnancy, laparoscopy may be considered. There is a higher incidence of laparoscopic confirmed endometriosis in this population. And we'll cover endometriosis impact on fertility in the next podcast. All right, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the infertility diagnostic algorithm according to the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which has been adopted by the American College of OBGYN. The reference for this is a committee opinion on the infertility evaluation from the ACOG from 2019. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.